Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The 2018 International Astronomical Conference held in Bremen, Germany, during the first week of October 2018, was attended by approximately 2,000 people from over 100 countries on the planet Earth. One of the attendees is Dennis O'Brien, a retired Ukiah, California attorney. O'Brien was a presenter at the International Astronomical Conference and is our guest on this edition of Radio Curious. The paper O'Brien presented focuses on the future of space law. He addressed potential issues as humanity goes into outer space and concepts on how to structure a new treaty to protect humanity while at the same time allowing for the development of outer space commerce. When Dennis O'Brien visited the Radio Curious studios on October 20th, 2018, we began our conversation when I asked him to explain how to implement and employ the concepts he presented to this conference. Uh, let, let's start with the commerce part because that's been the toughest nut to crack. You see, the Outer Space Treaty that was passed and adopted 51 years ago, back in 1967, says that no country can establish sovereignty over any territory in outer space, be it the moon, actually in the solar system. The Outer Space Treaty covers that area. Now, it's been tough to figure out how to get commerce involved in outer space, especially when it comes to extracting space resources, mineral deposits, water, oxygen, and whatnot. Uh, because if no country can establish sovereignty any place in, in outer space, then, then no country can actually grant property rights to, to any commercial interest to, to mine these assets. So to put it in a perspective, where does outer space begin? There's something called the Kármán line that says it begins at about 100 kilometers, at exactly 100 kilometers above the Earth's surface, approximately 60 miles. So is that sea level? Yes, 60 miles above sea level or what would be sea level at that particular place. And sovereignty means absolute control, as in within the United States, if someone wants to come in, they need to either have been born here, have a passport, or have permission as in a visa? Yes, it would be the same thing. If the United States, for example, established sovereignty over a certain area on the moon, then anyone who was born there would be considered a United States citizen, to borrow your analogy. So the United States signed the treaty? The United States signed the Outer Space Treaty. I think there are 170 countries that have signed it, including all of the countries that are called spacefaring nations, the ones that can launch in outer space, and all the countries that are doing business in space. So that brings us back to the commerce question. Correct. Tell us more about the issues there. Okay. Well, it really picked up a few years ago when uh, we discovered there was water on the moon. That water can be mined and turned into oxygen and hydrogen, both of which are used to fuel rockets so you can refuel rockets in space without having to bring the fuel up from Earth. It's far less expensive to use materials in space than to launch them from Earth. 
in addition, the oxygen can be used for habitations up there so that people can breathe. There are also lots of asteroids out there that we already know are ore-rich, uh, mineral-rich. There are some that are almost pure platinum uh, that people are just drooling over trying to, to get their hands on those resources. Before we get to the drool of okay. platinum, All right. let's talk about habitation. Okay. Um, what have the discussions been about developing a site that would be habitable by humans, by our species? Okay. Right now, the law under the Outer Space Treaty allows countries to establish bases on the moon that are nationally controlled. But there's very little that's been said about people who are not part of a government project just going out and, and establish their own, their own habitations up there. Can you, Dennis O'Brien, describe what those habitations would look like? They will most probably look like contained structures built low to the ground or slightly underground so that they're protected from the cosmic rays that come in. And I'm thinking about Mars right now or the moon. Neither Mars or the moon have the natural protections against cosmic rays that the Earth does with its Van Allen radiation belts and also the ionosphere. We're very, we're very well protected. On the moon or on Mars, they're going to have to probably build igloos of some basic material, perhaps e even uh, 3D printing. And then they're going to cover those with the materials of the Martian soil or, or the moon soil to provide that protection. That is most likely what any sort of habitants are going to look like in the near future. In the very far future, there's talk about what's called terraforming. For example, on Mars, basically industrial plants are set up to spew carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which would be terrible on Earth, but it might be just right on Mars to create an atmosphere that protects the Martians from the cosmic radiations and also to make the air thick enough and have enough pressure to, to live in. So you're talking about habitations on the moon as well as on Mars. Yes, and of course there are two different things going on there. It'll never be possible to transform an atmosphere on the moon because there's nothing there to transform, whereas on Mars you can. Any habitation on the moon is going to have to be enclosed, either shells built on the surface or caverns dug underground. And how about on Mars? Well, on Mars, that's when you get more creative. There is some atmosphere there. There's something to work with. Even the people that dream of terraforming acknowledge that it's going to take generations to do this, to actually transform Mars into an Earth-like planet. But it won't take that long for them to build habitations there that, that can thrive. And that's why the near future... Uh, if you've ever seen any pictures, you or your listeners have seen any pictures of, of uh, Mars bases, so to speak, it's always a cluster of dome structures that, that are built around a, a, something of a spaceport where the spaceships are landing. But these pictures are interpretations. Correct. They're not based on actuality on Mars. No, artist renditions, as they say. Which would allow for interpretations of what is necessary uh, to be adjusted to adjust the renditions once people have been to Mars. In fact, right now, uh, they're putting together a Mars lander, which includes an instrument that will transform Martian atmosphere and, and try to pull oxygen out of it, enough oxygen for people to, to live on. Once they can prove that, then they can move forward with the current plans that are visualized in the current drawings of having these enclosed habitations 
where humans can live and actually draw the oxygen out of the Martian atmosphere. We can't take enough with us to survive there. A Mars habitation has to be sustainable. So the talk that you gave in Bremen, Germany in early October 2018 um, dealt with these issues that you're sharing with us now and what else? The key is to set up an international framework of laws that will actually give property rights or at least what are called priority rights to people who either want to live on Mars or the moon or elsewhere in the solar system or who want to do business there. What this framework of laws would do would be to set up an international agency. You've probably heard of the Agency for International Development that exists right now for projects in, in uh, developing countries. Well, this would be an agency for the international development of outer space. And, and this would basically be granting permission, be granting priority rights to anyone who wants to go out there and either settle or to do commerce. It, uh, for example, the, any company that wants to go and mine the water at the North Pole of the Moon, let's say, will let this agency know that they are ready, willing, and able to do that. And this agency will say, okay, here's your license to do that, pretty much like the Department of Motor Vehicles. You go and you can do this, and as long as you don't mess with other people or permanently alter the lunar environment or Mars environment, then you're good to go. You can have this for a certain amount of time, a certain amount of space to do your exploration and then extraction of resources. Who would issue these permits? That's been the tricky part. What is envisioned is this international framework of laws that establishes an agency that issues them under the theory that only humanity as a whole can establish sovereignty over any place in the solar system, the moon, Mars, etc. And by humanity as a whole, you mean the entire human species on our planet Earth as opposed to regional governments. Regional governments or even single governments. And, and that's where the rub is right now. Once the Republicans took over Congress in the uh, 2014 elections, in 2015, they passed a law that unilaterally granted property rights to any United States corporation or citizen that got to a resource first. In other words, if, if Company X got to the North Pole of the Moon and said, we're here, we're going to start harvesting this water and selling it, under United States law, we as the United States would recognize that. No other country at this time has signed on to that way of doing things. There's still this effort to try to establish an international framework of laws so that when Company X says, hey, we're ready, willing, and able to go there, then it will be this international framework acting on behalf of humanity, assuming enough countries have signed the treaty, on behalf of humanity, they will grant these priority rights, these property rights to, to this company or these individuals to go out there and, and make the best use of those resources. So you just said that the United States is the only country that has signed the treaty. The United States is the only country who is moving forward on its own and deliberately saying, no, we're not going to sign the treaty. We think we can just do this. And that's the big conflict that has shown itself over this past year. I call it the nationalists versus the internationalists. So how has these conferences that you have attended dealt with that conflict? Well, 
international law, they try to do everything by consensus. Which means everybody agrees. Everyone has to agree. And there's no objection. And there's no objections to it. That failed. In April of this year, they had their final, what was called a Unispace conference, United Nations space stuff. And and they that task force had been tasked for decades to try to come up with a consensus framework for these laws. And in April, they simply declared that they gave up, mainly because the United States, and I should say also Luxembourg, have passed laws that said they're going to do it on their own. Luxembourg is kind of trying to become the, the Panama uh, of uh, the sea lanes. You may remember that all lots of ships were registered in Panama for ocean explorations because Panama offered the best laws to protect the corporations and the skippers and all that. Luxembourg is offering the same thing. If a company wants to incorporate in Luxembourg, they can use Luxembourg laws, and Luxembourg will grant them those property rights, just as the United States says they will unilaterally do for any of their corporations or citizens. The rest of the world is not joined in on that. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with retired Ukiah, California attorney Dennis O'Brien, who presented a paper at the International Astronomical Conference held in Bremen, Germany, during the first week of October 2018, about developing commerce and habitation in outer space, which in part includes the Moon and Mars. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dennis, um, how does the, the timing of these projects fit in to what is potentially abrupt climate change that would radically affect our life on Earth? The United Nations has linked the use of space to the sustainability of the human species and our sustainable use of all resources, be it in space and on Earth. They want to make sure that any advances in space is shared with all countries, no matter what their level of development. And this is resulting in, in countries like China. Uh, they've just opened up their new uh, space station to missions from any developing country. They will even help them launch it to get it up there, as long as the country builds experiments. Countries are now focusing on space missions which can measure uh, crop production or even the spread of crop diseases or diseases that affect uh, uh, animals and humans. Uh, they, see the, they believe that any use of space must fit into the sustainability model and e even to the extent of sustainability on, on other planets. The uh, proposed Moon Treaty, which the United States has not signed, says that any mission to other planets, any use of other planets, cannot materially affect the natural balance of that planet. My question is more in terms of the short term versus the long term, because you mentioned earlier in our conversation that realizing this could take more or less 100 years. The predictions of the survival of the Earth as a habitable place for Homo sapiens, like us, uh, doesn't seem to allow for that period of time. I understand what you're saying, and this might go to one of the deeper aspects of, of space law. One of the stated purposes of developing a, an international framework, the, the Moon Treaty, is to bring countries together 
to kind of force us to work on problems as a common mission with a common goal, that goal being the sustainability and advance of humanity. Now, I think what's been lacking in the discussion and movement on, on climate change is that there are certain countries, like the United States, who are saying, no, we really dig our own sovereignty. And, and, and that's been a pattern throughout my lifetime, that whenever people want to establish a treaty, an international treaty, and other countries are more into this, the Europeans have formed the European Union, they're, they're very familiar with countries working together to solve common problems. The United States, maybe it was because of our history of breaking away as a colony, we're the last one to join uh, on almost all of these things. But we must join. And we pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords recently, which was a huge step backwards. And it does have a lot of people frightened, worried that we might not last another 100 years. The reason I'm hooked on the space treaty is because it's the next step for humanity. And I think that if we do the next step right, it will set an example and will actually work its way backwards and help us do the other things right that we've kind of messed up on over the last several centuries. And part of that is working together on climate change and sustainability on this earth. So can we take as a given in our conversation that these proposals for traveling to outer space and setting up human habitations would be extraordinarily expensive? Certainly now. Okay, so then my question is, in your experience, I know your experience as an attorney where you're involved in social justice issues and assisting people who don't have access to the law or access to the courts. Do you think that that money appropriated for outer space adventures is significant enough to spend the limited cash reserves uh, considering the debt of the United States and probably every other country in the world? I think that we reached our point of diminishing returns some time ago when it came to governments, committing government funds for that. And we've come to realize that we have to involve private industry. In some ways, we have to just allow private industry to move forward on these matters. The reason we stopped going to the moon was because we didn't think we had enough resources to do it. The reason we're able to think about going back to the moon at this time is because of private industries. It's going to be a private industry lander that takes the United States back to the surface of the moon, perhaps as early as next year. So if that happens, that claim to the property, to the real estate on the moon, would belong to the private industry, a corporation. Some people argue that that is the case. How do you address that argument? This is why I and others are promoting the Moon Treaty. And in that treaty, it sets up this international framework of laws and an agency to administer it that will provide these rights. The company that is planning to do this, I think it's called Astrobotics, they would simply apply to this agency and say, hey, we want to land there. Is that going to get in the way of anything? And at this time, they'll say, no, go ahead and do it. And there you are. But isn't it true that that agency is yet to be established? It is true, which is why conflict may occur before we get a conflict resolution system in place. So if a private agency, a private corporation, were to land on the moon and there is no treaty, they could say, this is mine. 
or the, this belongs to Corporation uh, Moon. To the extent that they need that territory to fulfill the function of their mission, the answer is yes. Now, if all they're doing is sending an experimental lander that's just going to land there and take some pictures, then all they can really cling to is the square meter of space or so that they've landed on. Unless they choose to claim more and defend it if there's a conflict. Well, there has to be a basis for the claim, and there are some long-established bases for claims that have occurred since 1492 or so that, that have to do with first getting there and planting a flag, so to speak. But even more importantly is use. When people start to use an area, uh, either you with a rover or extracting minerals, setting up a solar energy farm, setting up habitation, once you have a use of an area, then your claim to it expands under the laws that as exist right now in the age of exploration. Well, Dennis O'Brien, tell us what originally drew your attention to this area of the law. I have to go back to 1957. I was five years old. All I knew was my little neighborhood. And one evening, my parents said, come on outside. I was living in the city of Pittsburgh, city block. And when I went outside, everyone who lived in that neighborhood was out on the street. All up and down every street I could see, everyone was outside. And one of them seemed smarter and said, look over to the west towards the sunset. And we all did. And suddenly it appeared, that blinking light that had never been there before. We thought it was Sputnik at the time. It turned out it was the, the upper stage booster that was tumbling and blinking on and off in the reflected sunlight. But at that moment, everyone's world changed. And mine certainly did. I mean, as soon as I could read, I was up at the library looking for books on, on outer space stuff. And then in 68, when the Apollo astronauts, and not, not the moon landing that everyone's talking about, it's when they first circled the moon and they took that picture of Earthrise. And I encourage all your listeners, go, go to YouTube and do a search for Earthrise. You're going to get the replay of those Apollo astronauts. And they were stunned. This was so new that no one had expected it. No one had planned taking a picture of the earth rising above the surface of the, of the moon. And yet it happened, and they took it. And that one picture has been credited for starting or giving a big kickstart to the environmental movement. It took off after 68. It's a big reason why there is a big push for space law now, because it created what's called the overview effect. Once you see space from up there, and every astronaut will tell you this, the world's problems become petty, or they seem petty. But once you're up there and you look down, and you see there are no borders, and you see that we're all alone on this fragile planet with fragile resources, with a hair-thin atmosphere, and you say, why aren't we all working together? And I say we now because I've gotten caught up in that. Once you get involved in this stuff, you say, this is humanity's best chance. And because of what you said about the environment stuff, it may be our last best chance. And, and it's become pretty obvious that developing a new legal framework has become the most important thing, uh, both for commerce, because of this whole property thing, and for those who want to colonize, just to make sure we're not running into each other. And so the people know that, that they're part of a safe and protective legal system. Other than the blinking light that you told us about that might have been Sputnik, is there another event that changed your life 
gave you new insight into your world? In 1985, I was part of the NASA Hastings Law Project, Hastings law, College of the Law is where I studied law in San Francisco. And I found out then that even though the Outer Space Treaty was in effect, there was no regime of laws, framework of laws, for anything beyond low Earth orbit. It occurred to me then that that is where someone could nudge humanity a little bit. If we can go to the moon together, then we can do anything together, including saving our own planet. So, Dennis O'Brien, what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Wow. Well, I, I've set up uh, this year an organization called the Space Treaty Project. Uh, there's a new website, spacetreaty.org. If you go there, you'll find a link to a petition where you can support the Moon Treaty. My goal for the rest of my life is to work on behalf of humanity to get the Moon Treaty or some form of it adopted, just as the old Outer Space Treaty has been adopted, to establish a framework of laws that will enable commerce but will protect humanity and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes that we made 500 years ago when it was military dominance and economic exploitation. I cannot think of any higher calling to devote myself to than to help humanity in its greatest transition. And finally, Dennis O'Brien, is there a book or perhaps two that you could recommend to our listeners? Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein, one of the deans of science fiction. Uh, that book connected human emotion to the world of science and science fiction. That book and many since then have tried very hard to keep space humanized. And, and that's the whole thing of what, what we're doing uh, with this treaty, is to try to make sure that we don't just do things for the abstract notion of progress, but that we do everything on behalf of humanity. The other book is by another science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, and it's The Foundation. Interestingly enough, the whole purpose of, of his foundation was to reduce human suffering by helping humanity through the transition in an orderly manner. Reducing human suffering is also the mission of Buddhism. And, and I found that quite a, a nexus for, for science and science fiction and, and religion to come together to say we must work on behalf of humanity. Attorney Dennis O'Brien, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. You are quite welcome. Thanks for having me. Dennis O'Brien is a retired Ukiah, California attorney. He attended the 2018 International Astronomical Conference held in Bremen, Germany, where he presented a paper addressing the future of space law and how to protect humanity's interests while at the same time allowing for the development of outer space commerce. For further information on O'Brien's work, you may contact spacetreaty.org. For further information on the International Conference, you may contact spacetreaty.com. The books Dennis O'Brien recommends are A Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein 
and The Foundation Novels by Isaac Asimov. This program was recorded on October 20th, 2018. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.